Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would quiet our hearts for long enough to hear the words of your Son. Lord, cut through and speak to us. Send your Spirit in this place. Amen. This gospel lesson is not for the faint of heart. When I showed it to Courtney, she said, so that's why in-law relationships are so complicated. <laughs> it doesn't fit our culture. We live in a world where being tolerant matters more than being truthful. Being nice matters more than being holy. And it's uncomfortable to hear Jesus speak this severely. I have come to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, one, from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We're sometimes uncomfortable when Jesus speaks like this. We want a kind and gentle and polite Jesus. If you were here at the ordination, you heard Bishop Quigg speaking about our desire to have a therapist God answers our prayers, protects us, takes care of us, but please don't make any fierce demands. Please don't speak severely. Jesus, and well, fortunately for us, even if it may not feel this way, doesn't always listen to that desire. This is fierce Jesus on display. I'm reminded of the passage in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the children are with the beavers and they find out that Aslan is not a man, but indeed a lion. And Susan says, oh, I think I would be very nervous meeting a lion. Is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. This is one of these passages where we feel the fact that Jesus doesn't always play by our rules. But I'm convinced, and this is really what I wrestled with this week, I'm convinced that when we avoid these sorts of passages, we actually miss the heartbeat of Jesus. We miss the fierceness of his love when we avoid things that are not easy to hear at first. And so today we're going to sit in his fierceness. And my prayer is that we will feel and see and understand the fierceness of his love for you, his desires for you. The backdrop of Luke 12 is Jesus teaching his disciples in the crowds that are listening around the edge that the Son of Man will return to judge. And he calls in this chapter his disciples to be faithful to the very end, to cling with him, not to be frightened in persecution, to claim his name in front of hostility, not to worry about money, to be faithful to him with their resources, to be faithful in every way, shape, and form. And Jesus is calling them to actually 
Trust in him as they wait. He's saying that I will come back and I will deal with these things and I will judge and reward and punish accordingly. He knew these claims would bring division. After all, he was not offering people a way of being politely indifferent to what he was saying. I think this is actually something that we need to hear because polite indifference comes so naturally to us. He was making claims that if they were true, there was no such thing as neutrality. He was saying to people, I am coming back to judge, and I'm calling you to be faithful to me. I'm calling you to claim me in the midst of a hostile world. There was no place of being politely neutral. And he knew that what he was saying, this criteria of judgment, will you be faithful to me, he knew this would cause division even cutting through the heart of a family where some said, I will be faithful to him, and others say the cost is too high. He doesn't sugarcoat this and pretends that it would be easier. It's demanding. It's as if he's saying to us, to them, to the crowds, to the disciples, make your choice. I am the Son of Man, the one appointed by the Father to rule over all creation. It's what the term meant. Make your choice. Will you be faithful to me? Again, polite neutrality was not an option. He rebuked the people in front of him for their ability to read the clouds and know the weather, but to miss what was going on right in front of them. The Son of Man standing before them, claiming to be the one that the Lord had appointed, and he's saying, can you not see the moment you're in? You're hypocrites. You claim to be close to God but you are unwilling to follow the one that God has sent. It's a fierce claim, a severe claim, one that would bring division. The passage begins with a startling statement. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Consider fire with me just for a moment. You've heard me say before that I think wilderness is one of the forgotten, wonderful secondary themes of the Bible, Food is one of the forgotten, wonderful, secondary themes of the Bible. So is fire. I came to cast fire on the earth. The first place we see fire is in a sword in the hands of the cherubim, guarding the passageway back into Egypt, Eden. We see fire again just a little bit later, when fire rains down from heaven, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm skipping over some of the references, but we leap forward, and I think of 2 Kings 1, Elijah sitting on top of a hill, army captains coming up with 50 soldiers apiece to capture him and hand him over to a wicked king, and as they come up to the hill, each time he calls down fire from heaven to destroy these wicked armies. We see fire in places like Malachi 4. Listen to these verses from Malachi 4. Where God says through Malachi, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You see fire in places like Second Peter. Where Peter says in chapter 3, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment 
and destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on them will be exposed. Throughout the Bible, and you can probably gather it from these references, throughout the Bible, fire is a picture of the judgment of God. It's a picture of the destruction of evil. Jesus is saying to these crowds and to his disciples, this is my role. I came to judge evil, to destroy it. And he says, would that it were already kindled. I wish I could start now. He's saying, in effect, we frankly forget how much our sin grieves and angers God. We take it far too lightly. We toy with it, justify it, act as if it has no consequence. But God hates the sin that destroys his creatures. He hates it. It grieves him. And Jesus is saying here, would that I could burn it up all right now. But God's fire is a cleansing destruction. It's a cleansing judgment. It only destroys the evil in us and in the world. It doesn't wipe everything off the map. It cleanses as it burns. The intent is to save. It burns away that which would destroy the world. Again, we forget what sin does. We know it experientially, but we act as if it's not true. It enslaves us. It destroys us. It corrupts us. But God's love is fierce. He wants to destroy that which destroys us. Think about the passage, if you were here at the ordination that we heard from Isaiah 6. Or Isaiah realizes his own sin and cries out, Woe is me! And the flaming angel, the seraph, takes the flaming coal from the altar. A picture of terror if you can ever imagine. A flaming creature flying at you full speed with a flaming coal in his hand. But he doesn't destroy Isaiah. He burns away the sin that would destroy Isaiah. This is what I mean when I say in a passage like this, if we don't listen to it, we'll miss the very heart of Jesus for us. Because he's not saying, I would destroy you. I long to destroy the world. I long to destroy everything. This is not the message of our Messiah. His desire is not destruction. His desire is salvation. But he says, I will burn away everything that will destroy these people that I love. I would destroy the thing that would enslave them. This is what he longs for. He's saying that he wants us free of that thing that binds and corrupts and harms and kills us. Would that it were already kindled. This is his role. His role is to destroy the sin amongst us, to baptize, in the words of John the Baptist, with fire, burning away that which is evil. Throughout the book of Revelation, when we see pictures of Jesus, his eyes are like flames of fire. His role is to destroy the evil that would destroy us. And he's saying here, I would long to burn it up. I long to purge, to cleanse, to destroy all evil so that my people would be free. So that my people would be free. 
This is what I meant when I said that if we miss passages like this, we miss the heart of Jesus. Because what he's saying here to you is, I long for you to be free of that which enslaves you. I long for you to be delivered, saved from those things. We don't help the situation when we minimize or justify our sin. It's not Jesus' approach. He doesn't say, yeah, it's no big deal. He says, no, that thing truly will destroy you. But I would destroy that thing that would destroy you. We don't help by justifying ourselves. We are so often, in using the language of the ancient theologians, curved in on ourselves, promoting ourselves more than others or at the expense of others, protecting ourselves at the expense of others. Serving ourselves rather than serving God, we are curved in on ourselves, deifying ourselves. And Jesus says, this destroys you. It destroys my creation. It's not the way it was meant to be, and it's not the way of life. It's the way of death. To seek in yourself life that you cannot produce, you only find death. But he said, I would destroy that, burn it out of you. This is what I long for. This is what he wants for you, for me. One of the ways that he does that is through his word. Fire is actually a picture also of his word. Not just the destruction of sin, the judgment of God on evil. Fire, you think about Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20, saying his word is like a fire in my bones. And his word is one of the means that he actually uses to purge the sin out of us as it cuts to the heart and convicts and reveals who we are and reshapes us and reforms us. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes from hearing. And when we are willing to listen to his word, he does things in us to purge and burn away that which would destroy us. He works slowly far more slowly than most of us want. We want him to go quickly, just get rid of it all right now. But I think he knows that he would destroy us if he moved that quickly. And so he moves gently, convicting one little thing at a time, deeper and deeper and deeper into our very heart, stripping away all that corrupts and enslaves and destroys. He does this through his word. And when we are willing to listen to his word, he will do this in us. But fire is more than just these things. Again, like I said, it's one of those great forgotten secondary themes. Because fire throughout the Bible is also a picture of the presence of God. Think about Abraham asleep in the night, those animals cut apart for sacrifice and covenant before him. And he awakes, and what does he see? The presence of the Lord in a flaming torch passing before him. A picture of the presence of God. Think about Moses standing before a bush that is on fire, but a fire that cannot be quenched. The presence of the Lord. Think about the pillar of fire leading the people of Israel, protecting them in their midst in the wilderness. Think about God on Sinai descending down to speak with Moses, the whole mountain ablaze in fire. In the language of Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. Fire is the picture of the presence of God. Of course, this reaches a crescendo where? Pentecost. 
where fire, the very presence of the Holy Spirit, descends on the followers of Jesus, and they are full of the presence and the life of God. Fire is a picture throughout the Bible, not just of judgment, not just of the cleansing away of evil so that we might be saved, not just of the word of God that does that cleansing away, but fire is a picture of the very presence of God himself. When you hear that, you realize what Jesus is saying. He wants more than just to cleanse you. He wants more than just to free you of that which corrupts and destroys. He wants more for you than you want for yourself. He wants more for me than I want for myself. I think about how frequently my prayer and my longing is to be free of the things that harm and hamper and corrupt and destroy. But that's where my prayer ends, is just to be free of the bad stuff. Jesus wants more. He wants your life consumed and filled by the very flaming presence of God, full of his glory. He wants you full of the divine life of God, it coursing through your veins, full of the glorious heat and flame. When he says, would that it were already kindled, there's steps along the way, the evil eradicated because the presence of a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. The evil has to be purged and burned, but it doesn't end there. You full of the word of God, but it doesn't even end there. He wants you full of the very life of God. This is what I meant when I said when we avoid passages like this, we actually miss the fierceness of Jesus' love. Because he is not content for you just to be a nice person. To have a good life. To have some pleasure. Some security. His longing for you, his longing for me, is that we would be full of the glorious flame of the presence of God overflowing with his life, something that if we ever experienced it in its fullness, we would all say, how in the world were we satisfied with so little? His desire for you is more than your desire is for yourself. As I wrestled with this passage, I was convicted that my desires for God's presence are so oftentimes just weak and inconsistent. I'm thankful that there's one fighting for us who is not inconsistent or weak in his desires. He longs for you that you would know the very life of God in your heart, overflowing with the flame of God's presence. And he does not falter in that desire. His prayers for you to that effect do not grow weak. He's fighting fiercely, saying, would that it were already kindled. At this point, if you're saying, well, if he wants it already kindled, why hasn't he done it already? And you have to understand that God's plan works. God's plan works in a time that is according to his wisdom. He knows the times and the places to do these various things. The passage doesn't end with fire, though. Because Jesus in verse 50 says something startling, something stunning. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. You don't need to worry if you're looking at your watch. I won't spend as much time on baptism as I did on fire. But baptism in the Bible is something that Jesus will, first of all, Jesus calls his death a baptism a couple of times. And that's kind of a strange reference 
until we realize that baptism in the Bible is a place or a time where someone is put to death so that someone can be saved. Peter calls the flood, Noah and the ark, a baptism. Evil destroyed so that one could be saved. Paul calls the Red Sea a baptism. The evil ones, the enslavers, destroyed so that others could be set free. This is the pattern of baptism. Does it make sense in Romans 6 when Paul talks about the fact that our old self is put to death in our baptism? Our sinful self so that we could be saved. Baptism is a picture of God's judgment killing one so that others could be saved. Baptism, entering into baptism, is entering into death. And Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's looking forward to the moment when he will step into the weight of God's judgment. This is stunning. He says of this moment, how great is my distress. I'm torn up till I can get there. That's how badly I long for it, to step into the weight of God's judgment against evil. Jesus, who knew no evil. Jesus, in whom there was nothing of evil to be judged or destroyed. Jesus, who deserved no judgment. Yet he's saying here, I'm longing to step into the full weight of the flood of God's judgment. I'm longing to step into that which would destroy me. And you say, why? Why would he do this? He was flawless, beautiful, holy. He was loving. Why would he say, I long to step into the weight of God's judgment? Y'all know the answer. It's actually hard to say out loud because we don't deserve it. But he says, I long to step into the flood of God's judgment for you. For you. For you who don't deserve it. I long to step into the weight of God's judgment. It's stunning. He longed for this because he loves you. Because he loves me. This is the fierceness of his love. Where he says, I am willing to go to the bottom of the flood to become like those crushed under the weight of the water in the time of Noah so that you might be on that ship, set free and saved. I long to be crushed by the weight of the walls of water at the Red Sea, crashing back together, destroying evil. I long to be at the bottom of that sea so that you might stand at the other side, free, delivered. This is his longing. He says, I'm torn up till I can get there, till I can step into the weight of God's judgment for you. Our sin is a bigger deal than we usually think. All this is actually really apparent from this passage. It needs to be purged and cleansed so that we would be vessels of the living God. It's a bigger deal than we usually think. But it's not a threat to God. It's not a threat to God. Jesus has already stepped into the waters of God's judgment for you. This has been done. That thing that he has long, was longing for has come to pass. And therefore, everyone who is his bears guilt no more. He stepped into the waters for you. As Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is true of y'all. 
that's true of me. Not what we deserve, but again, he wants more for us than we even know to want for ourselves. Amen.